Hey, Deserving Listeners, it is just me today, and I thought I would spend this day answering some patron emails. I have a lot to get to, so let's get to There's a bunch on uh, ethics and therapist-related stuff, so let's get to it. But this first email is actually a really sad one. Patron Patty wrote in and said, My therapist, who I was a patient for five years, died this last Saturday from COVID. I am utterly sad. I'd known him for eight years now. I loved him. He was such a care bear, yet super direct and precise. When I met him, we clicked immediately. He had a way to get to you and make you feel understood and cared for and valued. I think I'm just sad. End of email. Yeah, patron Patty, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. Losing anyone that we're close to, including a therapist, is a huge loss. And... Of course, you miss him, and of course, you are sad. And I hope that you have the space and the people where you can talk about your feelings when you want to and get support where you can cry, reminisce, and value uh, your relationship with him. You found a good one, and you stuck with him a long time, and the universe has taken him away from us and you, and... That is um, incredibly sad. To me, it's unfair that the universe is this way. I mean, I guess it is what it is, but I wish that the good ones would live forever and that our relationships would live forever. That's just me. Um, My relationships with my pets, my relationships with my loved ones, my relationships with my mentors and my therapists, I wish would never die, would never end, but... um, but they do in these tragic ways sometimes. So I'm really sorry, Patty, that you're going through this. And it alerts us to the real danger and the real fact that people are still dying from COVID-19 and we need to be careful and we need to follow the science. All right, this next email is from patron Joanna from Germany or Johanna from Germany writes in, What is your opinion on this article on psychology today about self-help and preoccupied people? I would love to hear your opinion on this. Okay, so let's go to the link that she provides. It's called Overcome Anxious Attachment by Becoming Dismissing by Hal Shorey, PhD. Let's, Let's evaluate what this article is all about. All right, let's just read the beginning here. It is common for me to hear someone with a preoccupied attachment style painfully recount an experience of interpersonal conflict, being rejected or shunned or ruminating over what other people think of them. Okay, just chiming in here. Okay, yeah, I'm with you so far. Hal Shorey, PhD, going on here. They are struggling for a way to fix the situation and calm their minds. But the more they think about it and search for a solution, the more emotionally activated they become. Just chiming in here. Well, you know, this... This little passage sounds a little fishy to me. Uh, They're struggling for a way to fix the situation on their minds. Okay. But the more they think about it and search for a solution, the more emotionally activated they become. I I don't know if that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, People who are searching for a solution, if they're in a good therapeutic relationship, they tend to not become more activated. They actually tend to be soothed. But anyway, going on with the article. Sometimes the solution is the opposite of what the person thinks is called for. My reply is often, what would a dismissing person do? Okay, just chiming in here. Uh, It sounds like, and again, it says it in the title, 
that the author is saying, as a therapist, when I have a preoccupied person and they're really struggling with rejection and preoccupation with attachment insecurity, that he will say to the client, well, what would a dismissing person do? Okay, you know, I could see that working maybe for some, but it's an oversimplification. And of course, a better question to ask is, what would a secure person do? But this implies that preoccupied attachment or any insecure attachment is under the person's control. (laughs) And it's potentially victim blaming. You know, someone comes in with borderline and you're just like, what would someone without borderline do? (laughs) Or someone with you know, panic attack disorders, like what would someone that wasn't a scaredy cat, what would they do? It's potentially victim blaming, but also dismissive attachment is no fun. And this is potentially a, you know, just looking at his picture, he looks like a white male. This is a particular, this is potentially a white male perspective. They will sometimes elevate dismissive attachment, avoidant attachment, because you are, essentially living the patriarchy dream, the toxic masculine dream, which is you don't need anyone. You're independent. You don't think about relationships very much. You're not quote unquote weak. You're strong. You're independent. You're like data on Star Trek or Spock. You don't have emotions. You're above it all. But that is actually not what is happening. That is the surface persona. But underneath the avoidant dismissive person is a vast ocean of emotion of needs that have never been met. And a lot of pain and fear and self-doubt. So to ask a preoccupied person to be dismissive is to tell them to cover up their preoccupation with with a bunch of fake independence and and pathological independence. Uh, Again, a better question would be, if you were going down this route, what would a secure person do? But, you know, I'll give this guy the benefit of that. If he... Uh, worked with clients well enough. Maybe the clients don't feel shamed and maybe the mindset of, hey, your preoccupation, your hypervigilance, maybe the way you deal with attachment and security is actually not helpful. And maybe if you had another tool in your box, in your toolbox, you could say, well, maybe this time I'm going to just try to go off on my own. I, you know, I, I feel like that person is triggering me. And instead of pursuing them, maybe I could just kind of play it cool and find things to do on my own. Yeah, maybe. But again, that implies preoccupied attachment is something that you have great control over. I don't know. Let's continue reading. All right, skipping down here. People with anxious preoccupied attachment styles have usually viewed the dismissing people in their lives as invalidating tormentors who routinely withhold love and care. All right, just chiming in here. Yeah, I mean, that's a overgeneralization, but fair going on. They have learned to cope with and understand these people by learning all about the dismissing style. This helps them to not take the behavior as personally, but they still greatly dislike it. So the thought of trying to act like a dismissing person might at first seem preposterous. But the thought of having a dismissing reaction can be calming to the preoccupied mind. All right, just chiming in here. I mean, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe. Uh, I guess I'll take his word for it that his use of this uh, intervention of telling preoccupied people to think like a dismissing person, uh, especially if they knew what that exactly was, I could see that maybe working for some people. But, of course, you know, it. I'm, I'm 
quite sure that that intervention wouldn't solve the problem permanently. All right, just skipping down here. So he, he goes over a situation where you're at work and you get into a conflict and you're worried about your relationship at work. And then he writes, at this point, the, uh, no, no, uh, let's see. The dismissing person would say, uh, and this is supposed to be in a good way. The dismissing person would say, oh, well, then maybe the other person at work won't like me. Or what I did wasn't really that bad. Or the other person will get over it. Or it's only a job. Or it really doesn't matter. Or I already apologized, so it's over. There's nothing else to be done. All right, just chiming in here. So, yeah, if this is what you're trying to help people to be more flexible and differentiated, the preoccupied person, then this could potentially help. Uh, and it is a schema or cognitive therapy technique where someone comes in and they're, they're just like, oh, I said this really, I got in this conflict at work and I don't really know what to do and I can't fall asleep at night and I, I'm just, I think about it all the time and I, what am I supposed to do? And I, you know, I, I tried to fix it. It's, it's not... And sometimes, you know, if the person is preoccupied, it might help for the therapist to say, well, what if you just tried on this other perspective that it doesn't really matter that other people don't like you? Uh, yeah, maybe maybe this other person at work doesn't like you. Maybe it's even your fault. But does it really matter? It can't, do you have to care about that? You know, maybe the, the dismissing person, like your spouse is who's dismissive, would just move on with their life because they just, that's their general policy. It's just like, well, I, I don't care what other people think of me. Now, this implies that dismissive avoidant people don't care about what other people think. Everyone cares about what other people think, even secure attached people. So it, now on the outside, the avoidant person might come across like they don't care about what other people think, but they care just as much as preoccupied people deep down. The other thing here is that with preoccupied attachment, your working model of self and other is opposite of that of an avoidant person. The preoccupied person typically has a bad self model and a good other model, meaning they see other people as good and they see themselves as bad. Avoidant people tend to see other people as bad and themselves as good. So just asking a preoccupied person to flip-flop their uh, working models would be hard to do, to say the least. Now, I should say that research does, does show that avoidant people can deal with interpersonal conflicts in a more functional way, in a way that doesn't cause as many symptoms for themselves. Um, avoidant people, on average, seemingly can cope with things a little better because they rely on the self more often and you know, will push away from other people. But again, this implies that somehow they're quote unquote stronger or more resilient when in reality underneath it all is a vast sea that isn't of emotion that's not being met and needs that aren't being met. So uh, it's a patriarchal thing to somehow elevate avoidant attachment as somehow better or a better alternative to preoccupied because Preoccupied tendencies are associated with women and avoidant tendencies are associated with men. We socialize boys to be more avoidant. We socialize girls to be more preoccupied. And so this seemingly white male author might be committing some kind of mistake in that way. I don't know. I have no idea who he is. Maybe he has a lot of credentials in feminism. Who knows? And then he ends the article saying, 
And don't worry, you are not going to overcorrect and go from being anxious, preoccupied to being dismissing, avoidant in relation to your attachment style. But some theorists, including me, believe that the way for a preoccupied person to move toward a secure style is to go through being dismissing. Uh, try it for a night, put on your dismissing cloak and see if you feel better. End of article. Yeah, the, I I don't know if that is inaccurate. That's not the way I see things. I I would rather have people from preoccupied become secure. But what he's saying is that people uh, that I, you know, what he's saying is, you know, the people that I treat who are preoccupied, usually on the road to security, the preoccupied people will become dismissive, uh, meaning that the preoccupied people will learn how to draw boundaries with other people, that they learn how to let things go. They learn how to, uh, you know, become pathologically independent on their road to becoming, you know, secure attachment. You know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe for this guy, this is what he's seen. I haven't seen that, though. But now the one statement he says is you're not going to overcorrect by be actually becoming dismissive. And, and that is true. And I, I've actually done that with a lot of clients before, like uh, not with this dimension, but, you know, I'll have a client that is a people pleaser and we are working on them being more assertive and asserting their needs and having boundaries. And inevitably what the people pleaser will say once they start to take action in their life is they will come in and they'll think, or they'll say to me, I feel like I'm being mean to other people. I feel like I'm being really mean. And usually what I will find is in their narrative, they are not being mean. If we had a scale from one to 10, with 10 being mean and one being a people pleaser, and what you're trying to get to is a five, you're trying to be assertive, you're trying to be in the middle. So again, one is a people pleaser, five is assertive uh, and healthy, and 10 is being mean. Usually when I have a people pleaser in therapy and as they become more assertive, they go from, say, a 1 to a 3, and they interpret that as they are being a 10. So they're not even fully assertive yet. They're still very much a people pleaser, but they're not as a people pleaser as they were before, and they will interpret that shift as, I am now a mean person. And so I always go over that with them, and I will frequently even point out, you are not the first client to say this. <laughs> and I lay out like... You are still extremely nice and probably too nice to other people. Let me tell you what I would do. I would like to think I'm like a five or a six or something. I'm probably leaning towards mean myself because I'm not a people pleaser. Let me tell you what I would do if I were in your shoes. And, uh, you know, because a lot of times people pleasers will be able to, like, it, say a client who's a people pleaser tells me a situation at work. And they're like, well, I, you know, I just feel like I'm being mean if I push back. And then I say, okay, well, let's say I was going, you know, me, I'm Kirk. So I say, hey, client, let's say I was going through that situation and I decided to say the following and I role play some assertive act that's like a five. My, the client inevitably will say, and then I ask the client, you know, what do you think? Am, am I fair to say that? The client will say, yeah, you're totally fair to say that. Because the people-pleasing individuals can usually identify healthy assertiveness in other people, but they can't identify it in themselves because they don't think they deserve it. They think other people deserve it, but they don't think they deserve it. And so when I say, if I did this, is that okay? And they're like, yes, that's okay. Then I will say, then why is it not okay for you to do that? 
Why is it unfair against other people for you to be assertive in the same way that I was? And that's kind of a, you know, a mind screw for, for them. And, you know, it's not the end of the therapy, but it is it does demonstrate this distortion that they have. All right. This next email is from listener Destiny from California. She writes, is my new therapist legal or ethical? I recently started seeing a new therapist that my, that my significant other has seen for 10 years. In my first solo session, the therapist told me that my boyfriend is a narcissist, he lies constantly, and that I need to protect myself from him. I'm not sure what to think about this therapist because of confidentiality. Should I trust her? End of email. Uh, right. So you go to a therapist. It's the same therapist that your boyfriend is seeing. And your therapist tells you that your boyfriend is, quote unquote, a narcissist, lies constantly, and that you need to protect yourself. So if I understand the situation right, which I obviously can't know for sure, then yes, this is a massive ethical violation. He is entitled to confidentiality and for her to talk about him at all is a breach of that um, that ethic that ethical code. Um, now, there's a you know there's ethical codes can be uh, there is some flexibility there. There's a possibility that she thought that she was saving you from great harm. In those situations, you can make an argument of breaking confidentiality, but I'm not hearing that that is the case, but it could be. So it's not necessarily unjustified. So we'd have to talk with her. But if this is a ethical violation, which it sounds like it is, this happens sometimes, sadly. We've talked about it before on the podcast. There are therapists out there that just don't care or don't know about the ethical codes and will act unprofessionally. One of the reasons, uh, this is one of the reasons why we should be careful when seeing couples in individual therapy. You know, uh, someone calls me up and they say, I would like to hire you as my therapist. And I'll be like, okay, how'd you find out about me? And they'll be like, oh, well, you're seeing my boyfriend. Then usually I will refer them somewhere else. But if I take them on, then I really have to be sure that something like this wouldn't happen, right? Um, like the therapist. So let's just live in a world where the therapist is like, I've been seeing this client for 10 years. I believe he is a menace to society. He lies all the time. He's lying to his current girlfriend. And then the girlfriend calls you up, calls me up and says, I would like to hire you as my therapist. Well, I would think on one hand, I might be like, well, it might be good for me to treat her because I feel bad for her and I actually could help her um, and maybe even tell her, look, you got to watch out for this guy. Now, I wouldn't go that far with it. But on the other hand, I would think, well, I know too much about him and it's really going to skew my treatment of her because I am going to I have too much countertransference against this client, I, I, this male client. I really do not like him and his personality. And when she talks about him, I'm going to be biased. And it's not going to be easy for me to navigate that. So I need to refer this person to somewhere else. It's not hard to do that. You just say, nope, sorry. Uh, ethically speaking, I can't treat you. I'm going to refer you somewhere else. Um, now, you also ask the question, should you trust her? Well, this is hard to say. Uh, you know, she, again, I don't know the specifics, so I can't really comment on that. But 
this could be an indication of a general pattern of, of unethical behavior and a lack of training or, or lack of competence. I obviously don't know that, but it could be, and you should take that into consideration before continuing with uh, her as your therapist. Um, on the other hand, it might be interesting to have her as a therapist um, because you will, you know, your therapist will have this inside information on your on your boyfriend, <laughs> on your partner, uh, and you're free to, you know, you're not committing any ethical violation or illegal act by seeing a therapist. It would be your therapist that would get in trouble. So, um, but I don't know if I'm reading the situation right, I might seek a second opinion. All right, let's take a break and we get back more emails. All right, we're back from the break. So I want to do an OPP for some old patrons. We have S from Bellingham, Washington, just north of Seattle. Thank you for being a patron all the way since January of 2017. So all these people have been patrons of the podcast for the past, what, three and a half years, four years? Uh, we have Jim from Bellingham as well. So wait, we have S and Jim, both from Bellingham. Do you know each other? We have Rozzy or Rosie from Australia. We have Robin, good old Robin, a student of mine, a friend from Seattle. We have Dominica from Calgary. We have Joseph from Texas. We have Tim from New South Wales, Australia. And we have Kelly from New York, New York. Thank you. S, Jim, Rosie, good old Robin, Dominica, Joseph, Tim, and Kelly for being patrons of the podcast since January 2017, sticking with us this entire time. All right, this next email is from Upper Tier Patron Cody from Salt Lake City. They write, I want to ask what your thoughts are on how to trust therapy after you have been compelled to open your therapy records to others. I have had two occasions where this has come up. The first time that I had a open my therapy records, I elected not to open them up. The lawyer advised to pursue a civil case and a rape at my workplace. I would have to open my therapy records up, so I elected to not pursue civil action. Okay, so just chiming in here. I think what Cody is saying is that at their workplace, they were uh, in a civil case in which they were the person being harmed at a workplace. It sounds like a rape occurred at the workplace, and so they were, uh, you know, having a civil case against the business or something. And their lawyer said, in order to bolster your case, you have to open up your therapy records and we will submit them as part of our uh, case against this business or this individual. And Cody uh, elected not to open their therapy records up going on here. And the other time I did, I did open my therapy records. While adopting my daughter as part of a home study, I had to open my therapy records to them. I have bipolar 2 and PTSD, and I am afraid of seeking therapy again because I don't know when in the future I would be compelled again to open my therapy records. I don't trust that I can open up to a mental health practitioner knowing in the future I may be compelled to have to open up my records again. What are your thoughts? End of email. Yeah, so the first thing I'll say is you deserve therapy, so let's hope that you can find someone. And I would look for someone who will agree to limit what they say in the record. Most clinicians are willing to limit what they say. Most clinicians, the, the common training mantra for novice clinicians is as you are keeping your notes and, and you're writing down 
you know, progress notes and treatment plans. Imagine your client is looking over one shoulder and a lawyer is looking over the other shoulder, meaning that you should never put anything in the client record that your that your client would be upset with unless you are in a situation where you have to put something in the client record like the client is exhibiting unsafe behavior, suicide, homicide, abuse, this sort of thing. They might not want you to put that in the record, but you need to uh, for various different reasons. One, so that the record is complete, and two, so you can cover your own butt. Because if, for example, a client were to attempt and succeed in killing themselves, you need to uh, show that you did what you were supposed to do. So you need to write stuff down, even if a client doesn't want you to write that down. But unless you're in one of those situations where harm or death is or abuse is occurring, then in my experience, most clinicians are totally open to working with a client about what's included. Um, I actually train my trainees to put extremely limited information in the progress notes for this reason, because your progress notes are there for your ability to track progress on the treatment goals. And that is not uh, that does not necessitate specificity in what you discuss in session. For example, a client talks about how they were sexually abused by their father. And in the record, I recommend clinicians say something to the effect of discussed the client's traumatic history instead of writing something like the client told me uh, about this story in which she was uh, sexually abused by her father uh, who was named such and such and might live at such and such address. These kinds of sp- specifics, cl- uh, clients tend not to want to be in there because if the file is pulled, there are various different eyes that will be looking at it. And you just never know what is going to upset a client. And of course, as therapists, we don't want to upset clients unless we have to under safety reasons or ethical or legal reasons. And uh, so now there's lots of different practices. Some people, uh, some supervisors will even require your notes to be very specific. Usually that's because there's some concern about funding because some auditors will look at agency files and say, "Uh, these, these notes look really general. And so we think we're not going to fund your therapy program anymore because it doesn't look like you guys are doing uh, very good work. And so some supervisors will say, you got to put something specific in there. You got to put a quote in there or something. And, you know, there's very separate practices. But anyway, my point is, is that Cody, up at your patron, Cody, you deserve therapy. And if you go to a therapist and say, look, I have this issue from the past that my file might be pulled for various different reasons. Uh, I can't imagine why it would, but maybe it will. And I just want to be able to trust that you're not going to put a lot of stuff in there that I don't want the courts or other people to look at. And again, most, most therapists will agree to that. It also, or in my anecdotally, I would say most therapists would agree to that. And then what you do is you periodically look at your file. At any time, by the way, clients out there, you can just pull your file. You can just be like, can I look at my file? Now, most files are very boring. (laughs) If they're done right, honestly, it would just be the kinds of things I was talking about, like, you know, discussed how to reduce the conflict in the couple, discussed ways to increase uh, intimacy in the couple. So it's, you know, really general uh, and not very interesting. But at any time, you have the right to view your client file. It might take a couple weeks for the therapist to provide it to you. But 
it's you have access to it in the same way that you have access to your medical file at your physician's office or your dental file at your dentist's office. You, you have that right. And you could, Cody, uh, periodically look at your file and say, mm, I, you're getting a little specific in this progress note. Can you limit that a little bit? Because if this file is pulled in the future, I don't want that out there. So can you please help me with that? Again, if you screened therapists from the beginning uh, such that the therapist has proven themselves to be on board with that practice, then you can do that. The, the other thing that will help is private pay instead of using medical insurance to pay for therapy. It obviously that you know raises the cost, but I've had people do that. They will hire me and will talk about the client file and about insurance, and they will decide, oh, well, I don't want anyone knowing about what we're talking about here, and I don't even want to be diagnosed, really. I don't want any official diagnosis to be out there. So can I hire you at private pay, meaning that I pay you directly and we don't use medical insurance? And then as a therapist, I have no, uh, I, I'm not compelled to diagnose them and publicly diagnose them. So backing up here, if a, if someone comes in using insurance, um, which I actually don't use any, I don't do anymore, but I used to, people would come in and use their insurance and uh, to make the insurance pay for it, th- there needs to be a medically necessary diagnosis, right? And thus, I have to uh, diagnose the client if there is a legitimate diagnosis, and then I have to submit that diagnosis to the insurance company. And the insurance company, obviously, there's a lot of eyes that have access to those records. Now, they're pretty good about HIPAA and all those kinds of confidentiality measures, but you just never know. And if the file is pulled at some point, that diagnosis is a matter of uh, permanent record. So if you use private pay, then I, as a therapist, am not compelled to diagnose, at least publicly. I might diagnose in my head. I might diagnose in my psychotherapy notes, which are not uh, pullable, if you will. They're just private notes that I keep from with myself. So that's how I answer that question. But Cody, you deserve therapy. So, you know, especially you have bipolar 2 and PTSD, you know, I'd find a therapist, do it. All right, this next email is from patron Julie from Cali. I'm guessing that is California. My husband and I finally committed to couples therapy on Regain, which is the BetterHelp sister site. We had about one video session per week with occasional session cancellation because our therapist had scheduling conflicts. But over the past five weeks, our therapist had consistent cancellations on us, either due to scheduling or her own health issues. We have only had two therapy sessions in the past five weeks. It has not been good, and our issues have been regressing worse and worse, and we've got no one to talk to. Is it wise to switch our therapist at this stage? End of email. Okay, so what I'm hearing is, you see, you had one video session per week with occasional session cancellation because your therapist scheduling conflict. So occasional, so maybe like once a month, maybe, is what you're, maybe once every two months. But then over the past five weeks, your therapist has scheduled more than more than showing up. So you've had two therapy sessions in the past five weeks and sounds like th- at least three cancellations due to scheduling issues or her own health issues. Okay. So is it wise to switch your therapist at this stage? Um, it's up to you, of course. Uh, but... I would consider it if I were in your shoes. I mean, unless you really, really like this therapist, which I guess might tip the scales, I I would, I mean, honestly, (laughs) 
if a therapist canceled on me more than once in a, the span of a year, I would I would question what's going on here. And I mean, unless I was uh, kind of casually, go, you know, there's been times in my life where I've casually gone to therapy and had a therapist. Uh, I've never had a therapist. In my life, I've probably, I can't remember ever having a therapist get, you know, cancel on me. Now, that's not to say that doesn't happen. And for myself, have I ever canceled on a client? You know, I don't know if I have. Maybe, you know, I was doing in-home therapy for a while, so maybe there was time, there were times when I got caught in traffic or something and I, I was late. I mean, I know that would happen, but I, you know, I've been a therapist for 25 years. I don't know if I've ever canceled on a client. Now, I have the privilege of being fairly healthy and having a lifestyle that uh, makes it so it's easy for me to, to do that. And, um, yeah, so... So there's that, you know, if someone gets sick often or if their kid is in and out of the hospital or something, you know, it makes sense. And, and, uh, I haven't really had any of those, uh, issues, but if, you know, you're talking about two issues that your therapist taught, their own health issues, that seems like that's a legitimate reason, but their own scheduling issues. So you're saying your therapist is canceling on you because of quote unquote scheduling issues. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Seinfeld episode where Seinfeld goes to the front of the line of the of the rental car and says, uh, you know, place and says, okay, uh, I, I'm here to get my car. And they're like, sorry, we don't have a car with you. And, and he, Jerry says, but I have a reservation. And they're like, yeah, I'm sorry, but we don't have a car for you. And Jerry's like, but I had a reservation. I don't think you understand what a reservation, what a reservation means is that you reserve a car for me so that when I show up, the car is there for me. If you just rent a car out, then you don't understand what reservation, you know, I'm not doing the routine well, but, um, so when you schedule with a, with a therapist, uh, how do you have scheduling issues unless the therapist is double booking themselves or something is going wrong? Who knows? You know, we don't know, obviously. But if if I had a therapist that, that canceled on me for really any reason, even if it was legitimate reasons like their own health issues, especially if my my issues were getting worse and worse like yours are, I would definitely consider finding a more consistent therapist. And I might even interview therapists like, do you ever cancel on your clients because we're looking for someone that is consistently there? And, uh, you know, Julie, you deserve that, honestly. And maybe this therapist is great, but, you know, you'll hear me rail about this sort of thing. Therapists out there, listen to me. Be consistent. Show up on time. Uh, get your crap together, right? And do not have, quote-unquote, scheduling issues. Now, if you have legitimate health issues... That is totally fine. You might have to maybe scale back your clients. You might have to maybe not take clients. You might have to talk with your clients ahead of time and just be like, look, before you hire me, I have to let you know I have health issues that are going to cause me to cancel on you sometimes. Like I actually supervised someone who was frequently out of town for uh, her other job. And so we worked on uh, this disclosure that she would tell clients before they even came to her office, she would tell them in, you know, over the phone, by the way, I have a job, I have another job that pulls me out of town uh, kind of randomly. And that means that there will be times when I can't see you in person, but I will be able to talk with you over the phone or over video uh, conference. 
Um, is that okay with you? We don't want to just spring that on someone halfway through treatment, right? So if you're someone who has health issues, then before they come to your office, you have to say, by the way, I have health issues, which causes me to need to cancel my therapy sessions for that day. And I just wanted to make sure you understood that so you um, consent to treatment with me with the informed consent process so that you know that. And some people will be like, yeah, I don't mind. My issues aren't an emergency. And so if you cancel on me, that's fine. But others might say, uh, that is not okay. I need someone that's consistent and I want that consistency. And so, uh, yeah. And so, and then that's me talking to therapists, clients out there, you deserve to have a therapist who is consistently showing up on time and does not cancel on you. (laughs) I mean, I'm guessing a lot of you out there as clients have had your therapist who is always on time and never cancels on you. And so uh, maybe something is happening in the world and things are, and I'm just hearing about more of these kinds of things, but it's not okay. Uh, Be on time. You know, when you go to the doctor, the physician, you kind of expect, well, my appointment's at two, maybe I'll sit in the waiting room for, you know, half an hour. You just kind of expect that. But that's because in the you know, physician world, you might, as a physician, come into an office and, and predict the, the appointment will only be 15 minutes, but then you find as things are, you know, as the symptoms are being reported to you that the appointment actually is going to re- require 45 minutes. And instead of saying, I've got to move on to my next patient, come back, to, you know, two weeks later, I might as well just get this done right now and push back some of my clients a little bit. So, there's that. But with therapy, we tend not to have situations like that, right? We tend to have situations that we can deal with in an hour. So, uh, and if we can't, then, you know, that's kind of a rare situation. Anyway, so you deserve to have someone show up on time. <laughs> that's my point. I don't know why I have to say that. All right. This next email is from patron Heidi from Oregon. She writes, should I apologize to my adult daughter and son who are both in their 20s? My question came about while listening to you talk about overfunctioners and underfunctioners in one of your reaction videos. I was so the overfunctioner in my mom role with my two children when they were younger. I wish you could supply me with a time machine so I could go back in time and parent all over again in a different way. I would give more constructive and positive criticism and less negative comments in an overfunctioning way. Your explanation of how to word things to a child made me so sad that I started to cry. I should have parented better, but alas, I did not do so in that healthier way. For some reason, some ingrained style kicked in instead, and I parented in a way that was more negative. Do you think it would be beneficial for me to have this discussion with my two uh, adult offspring and maybe apologize? Again, hook me up, Doc. From hook me up with Doc from Back to the Future. End of or um, she writes a little bit more, but just chiming in. Yeah, Heidi, you know, parenting is is uh, just one. Th- what do I say? <laughs> Par- parenting is uh, a, a what do I? Oh, geez, parenting is tough. <laughs> Parenting has inherent failures baked into it. You are, every parent 
looks back and wishes they could have done th- things differently. At least the good ones do. So that's normal. And every young parent starts off thinking, or at least not every, but most start off thinking, I'm going to do wonderful. I'm going to do so much better than my parents. And then reality sets in for 20 years and you just fall into these patterns. And so it is, um, it's expected. One of the things that I can, will recommend that people do when they evaluate their parenting is, did you parent better than your parents parented you? Because if you did that, or at least the same, then you're, you're doing good. If you, cause your parents modeled to you a certain way, they attuned to you in a certain way and they gave you uh, attachment injuries and insecurities. And if you manage to parent better than your parents did, then, then you're doing really great. Uh, because a lot of our parenting practices have to do with the way we were parented. Right. Anyway, so Heidi, you know, good for you for looking back and saying, hmm, I think I made some mistakes and I want to make up for it. But I really hope that you don't shame yourself. Parents are shamed too much. They shame themselves too much. Uh, we have an ex- we, we have two cultural aspects in the United States that are problematic. Many, many, many aspects, but two that I'll talk about that are related is that there's a, there's such a thing as good parenting that is perfect and everything's fine. And the other thing, the other myth is that there's such a thing as being completely in love with your spouse and never fighting for the rest of your life. These two things are complete myths. No couple uh, doesn't fight. Every couple fights. Every couple has bad months or years. Every parent fails their children uh, frequently, they also succeed uh, often parents, but it's all a matter of ratio. If you manage to succeed 10 times for every one failure, then you're doing pretty good. But that amounts to millions of failures throughout the time that you are raising your children, right? And a lot of reasons why your children need to go to therapy, right? So you've identified, Heidi, that you've, you overfunctioned for your children and made them perhaps feel incompetent or afraid of the world or something. And you want to make up for it. And your kids are in their, in their 20s. There's a lot you can do, Heidi. Your children are in their 20s. They have a lot of time ahead of them in which you can help them and you can make up for things that happened in the past. You can obviously apologize. And the other thing is learn about overfunctioning, underfunctioning, that dynamic. Learn about dependency and learn about parenting that results in dependency and just do something different, you know, do something that is more healthy. I don't know if this is your situation, Heidi, but it's possible that you, uh, you know, you say here that you gave negative comments instead of constructive and positive criticism. Well, kids in their 20s need a lot of constructive criticism and a lot of positive criticism and a lot of help with everything. Um, so especially if they're under functioning at this point, right? So be- believe in them, show them that you believe in them, uh, you know, give them the reins, let them make their own mistakes. Uh, ask them if they, if they want your opinion, that's probably the best thing you can do is respect their boundaries and say, so I have some suggestions for you that are popping up in my head, but I don't want to impose my advice on you. Do, you. do you want some advice on this issue? Because you're a grown person and, and I think you're really smart and I believe in you. And I, maybe 
maybe you don't need my help. You know, that kind of approach could, you know, often make up for a lot of things. When, when people in their 20s and 30s come to me and they are under-functioning and they did have an invasive negative parent, one of the things that we're working against is that the client will say, well, I'd love for my mom to apologize and make up for things, but she never will. But you will, Heidi, you're willing. So there's so much health and growth and change and goodness that can come from your motivation to make up for your mistakes, which, you know, maybe every parent, maybe you're leading the way, every parent, when uh, you know, I think it's off. I think often parents will start to uh, recognize or really um, become laser focused on the mistakes they made when their children go, go into their twenties, because there's there's a little bit more time, and you can also start to see the personality problems that your kids start to exhibit in their twenties, independent of being a kid, and you start wondering, oh, did I do that to my kid? Uh, and you start to regret things. And so you, Heidi, are strong, you're um, differentiated, you're mature, you're caring, and, you, you know, point that goodness in the right direction, and there's a lot of good you can do. You go on with the email here, you say, does Stacy pick your thumbnail pictures on the YouTube videos depending on how she's feeling about you at the time? I imagine you must laugh at some of those still shots she chooses. Please tell her thank you. They are not going unnoticed. End of email. Yeah, so <laughs> um, she, she might pick the thumbnail, but just to, you know, if you don't watch my reaction videos, this isn't going to mean anything to you. But the in the beginning, when I started doing reaction videos about a year ago, I would actually go through and find a screenshot to have as the, the thumbnail picture. And I it would take a lot of time. You know, I'd have to find like a good kind of representative shot of me with a facial expression or something. But within a month or so, I just found that was so laborious that uh, I just let YouTube choose because YouTube, if you don't add a thumbnail, YouTube will just choose a random uh, screen shot of your video. Um, they, they give you three options usually. And so, but some, but it'll just default to, and it doesn't, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It just like picks a random uh, screenshot. And so that's what we do now. Now, Stacy might pick from the three available YouTube shots, but you know, they're just three random frames from a 20 minute video. So when you, you know, does Stacy pick the thumbnail pictures? Probably not. Honestly, she probably just lets YouTube choose, which is kind of funny because a lot of the times <laughs> the, the frame that YouTube chooses is pretty uh, funny and interesting. <laughs> and some of them are, well, I'd say most of them are not very flattering, you know, um, but, uh, but yeah, but she does actually choose the art for the audio episode. So you might see art for this audio episode and she designs that and she does that all on her own, which is really cool. Back in the day, years ago, I used to try to do that, but it's it's really time consuming, you know, t- to sit down and find, uh, you know, art that is not, that is licensed and you're able to use and you have to use a font. Anyway, uh, she does all that stuff, which is great. All right. This next email is from anonymous patron. They write, why is it so hard to talk about my appearance with my therapist? 
I have problems with my appearance. I think that I am ugly and I spend a lot of time thinking about it. Actually, I'm skipping different social events and avoid meeting people in person because of my complex. Uh, we are, I'm talking with my therapist about so many issues and problems, but when I start to hint that I don't like how I look, I feel kind of awkward and ashamed and I can't talk about it. Maybe I'm afraid that he will say something like, yes, you are ugly, but it's not important. Or maybe I'm trying to avoid the truth. Do you have any tips on how to talk about this topic? End of email. Yeah, so I suspect, I don't know Anonymous Patron, but I suspect that if you opened the conversation to a schema around ugliness and that everyone, you exhibit a common schema that people have with avoidant personality disorder. Listen to that whole deep dive, I'm guessing you have, uh, of defectiveness, meaning that there are people out there that have this general sense because of the way they were treated that there's something deeply wrong with them and that everyone knows. So that's almost always, if not always, a distortion and not true. But the person believes it. It's just very, they're very, very sure of it. And this is why it's a schema or even a personality disorder because it's contrary to evidence, right? People will have these notions that you know, there's just something deeply wrong with me. And then we, we will attach, we'll just figure out some quality of ourselves that will justify the way we feel. Uh, so let me back up. So some people, when they're young, they are, they, they are treated in a way that gives them the message that they are worthless because of something about them. They're rejectable, they're abusable because there's something wrong with them. Either they're not smart enough or they're not big enough or they're not the right gender or they're not the right sexual orientation or something. Something is, there's a message that said, if you were different, if you didn't have that quality, these bad things would not be happening to you. And sometimes it can go way back to when you're like 12 months old and you might not remember those events. But anyway, you grow up with this felt notion that there is, there's just something wrong with me. I know that. I know that there is just something inherently deeply wrong with me and either I have to uh, hide it from everyone or I just have to avoid talking about it or avoid people. And that's what you're doing. You're avoiding social events. You're avoiding meeting people in person because you believe, anonymous patron, that not only is there something deeply wrong with you, but that thing is that you are ugly and that everyone knows it and everyone is disgusted by you and doesn't want to be with you or something like that. I'm venturing to say that that is a massive stretch of your imagination and that, uh, but it's, it's sort of quintessential avoidant personality disorder. So I, I might listen to that deep dive and I would bring it up with your therapist. So you don't have to bring up, uh, but obviously you can bring it up a variety of ways, but I would for sure. I mean, this is something that is absolutely impacting your life. It absolutely is psychological. It absolutely is something that therapy can help with. And so I, I highly encourage you to bring it up unless you have much bigger fish to fry in therapy, which I can't really imagine uh, that this fish isn't at least, you know, top five, then uh, maybe not, but I, I would, but there's various different ways. You can just lead with just saying, by the way, I have this thing. You can just read him this email. Uh, the other thing you could say is 
So I have this thing that I'm really ashamed of, but I don't want to talk about it because I'm worried you're going to, you're not going to react in a way that's going to be helpful to me. You could say that, and then you could talk about talking about it. Or you could just bring up, so I've been listening to this podcast and they were talking about these schemas about, you know, deep down people, some people believe there's something deeply wrong with them. I think I might be one of those people. And then you can kind of, work your way up to the specifics of the distortion that you have. But please talk with your therapist about it because you really deserve to heal from that. All right, this next email is from patron Sarah from California. She writes, how can those with social anxiety disorder heal when it is people that makes the anxiety worse? I am diagnosed with social anxiety disorder and have been in therapy for the past year for it. While I have been a social recluse for the past 10 years, I have made a friend in the past year. However, this friend is moving away. It is hard to imagine myself making new friends or going out once this friend leaves. In many of your episodes, it has been noted how we need people to help us heal. However, with social anxiety, it is hard to imagine not being constantly anxious around people. End of email. Yeah. So, yes, I believe that we need people to heal and that our cultural and sometimes within my discipline of psychotherapy, this notion that you need to heal on your own first before you can interact with people is really counter to human nature. So yes, you need people to heal, but there's a lot of things you can do on your own. Uh, There's a lot of cognitive therapy you can do and habituation you can do, which is, you know, within the cognitive therapy realm, it's a lot of self-talk. You probably have similar to the anonymous patient we were talking about earlier. You probably have a lot of massively distorted beliefs about how you come across to other people or about the consequences of making a fool out of yourself in social situations. That's the nature of social anxiety. In fact, social anxiety and avoidant personality disorder are on the, uh, to some on the same spectrum, which I, I'm at, I believe, at least that's how I conceptualize it and others too. Anyway, uh, so working on how you think and really uh, changing the schemas that you have although can be hard is definitely something you can do on your own, but you know, sometimes you need someone else to help you that with that. And then habituating is another thing, Sarah, is you, uh, to recover from social anxiety as with avoidant personality disorder, you have to become habituated to the stimulus of, of social socializing and you have to edge yourself up to it. You've already done a few things. You have a friend, so that is, you've habituated to that. I'm guessing there was some adjustment you had to go through in order to tolerate the anxiety you had interacting with that friend. You've also gone to therapy, which is also social and I'm guessing triggering on some level, but you've habituated to it. So uh, you have to keep doing that. And that this is why when you become a, uh, when you become a hermit and you isolate, this actually prevents you from healing because this is the people you need people to heal is when you isolate your anxiety can become worse because you don't have any, you're not used to interacting with other people. So a big part of your healing requires you to take baby steps. You know, don't throw yourself in the deep end, but little things, little things, and it's going to be hard. But if you use, uh, you know, the kind of trauma therapy that I talk about where you use prolonged exposure, then that can cause your body to habituate and then you just don't have the physiology of anxiety when you're presented with social situations or at least as much. 
The other thing is, is it's likely that you develop social anxiety due to some relational traumas early in life, either in your family or at school or with friends or something. And talking about those things in therapy can help as well. All righty. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. It was fun reading your various topic emails in this episode. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.